Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio this week are Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and from New York, we have Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, who is interviewing our guest this week, the head of the US investment banking arm of MUFG, the Japanese lender. First this week, we'll be talking about trading capital following new rules under the so-called Basel IV rulebook. Secondly, we'll be looking at BBVA's entry into the UK market. And finally, that interview with MUFG. First, though, Laura, you've been looking at the so-called, some call it Basel IV, some deny there's any new rule book in terms of the international bank capital standards. But this is all to do with trading capital and what banks will have to hold in future against their trading activities. Yeah, so this is looking at a fairly large increase in the amount of capital banks will have to set against what they hold in their trading book. So in that regard, if you look at the European banking context, it has very little impact for most of the large European banks because they are largely retail banks. It has very big impact for the European banks and the US banks who have large investment banks and who do large amounts of capital market activities. What we had last week was another impact study from the global regulations where they were looking at basically if they were to implement these new rules, how much that would actually force banks to increase their capital. There was some scary headline there, wasn't there, about one bank which is unidentified would have to hold nine times more capital than they currently do. The industry has said that the figures are not particularly helpful because they're based on what banks held in 2014. So in that extent, they aren't terribly up to date. And there's also been some changes to how you would actually calculate those since then. And that hasn't actually been worked in either. The international regulators were keen to stress if you look at banks overall, banks' capital overall would only increase by 4.7% because of this. Now that looks tiny. Then if you go into the detail of it, you see that there is one bank which is estimated to have to hold 800% more capital against its book than it now does. So there's a real spectrum of things. I guess nobody's speculating about who that might that bank well, might be, are they? There was a report out from analysts at Barclays and they are speculating the bank which has the biggest increase is actually Deutsche Bank and there's a fairly large understanding that that is the case and Deutsche and certainly several other European banks have said that they will see a significant increase in their risk-weighted assets because of this and because of several other things going on. So you have this which only affects investment banks. Then you separately have people looking at how banks calculate the risk-weight assets for other kinds of assets. So you may have them having to set aside more capital against certain kinds of loans or against other things. And this is basically because banks have been taking a very different view in terms of how much capital they need to set against effectively the same kind of risks. So now you have a broader attempt by regulators, both in the Eurozone and also internationally, globally, trying to effectively standardise this. So bankers call all these things together effectively a fourth Basel package. We've asked the governor of the Bank of England and the head of the global supervisory body about that. He basically says that this is merely putting the final touches on the third Basel package, but it does effectively become a matter of words, really, because the overall impact is that banks are going to need a lot more capital to carry out doing the things which they are currently doing or 
or banks will have to change the things that they're doing and do less of these very capital intensive things. Shrink back from that trading activity, which they've already shrunk quite significantly. And I guess then the, the kind of systemic question is whether that makes markets more volatile than they already have become following the the retrenchment we've already seen. Yeah, I mean, banks have been talking a lot about the real withdrawal of liquidity, which has been a consequence of what we've already seen and which will be an even bigger consequence now. On the same day as they actually put out this, the international regulators also published a separate piece of work which they had done around the liquidity. And they said that they couldn't find any conclusive evidence showing that the capital rules so far did have a big impact on liquidity. They made points like saying that people shouldn't think that the amount of liquidity in the system immediately prior to the crisis was a normal amount of liquidity, that that was in fact a high and that the baseline should settle somewhere below that activity. Now, banks say that there has been a very profound impact on liquidity and that it has now become very difficult to do even trades in very ordinary assets. So there is a battle of wills going on there. It looks as if the global regulators are very much of the digging their heels in variety there and they're saying, listen, we don't see an issue in liquidity. They have undertaken to go and do some additional work on it. But given the tone that they're taking so far, they are moving in the direction of saying, well, actually, this is an appropriate level of liquidity for the market. And this is how we intended this all to work out. Well, we'll see what ructions it causes. Certainly investors are nervous as well as traders, as signalled by Martin Gilbert, head of Aberdeen, who told our FT City network a few days ago that he thought central banks should intervene to safeguard liquidity. It's an ongoing debate and I guess it will run until the next crisis. Let's move on to our second topic for the day. BBVA, which is Spain's second biggest bank, has stayed on the margins of the UK banking market for many years, despite the fact that the Spanish number one Santander and the next biggest Sabadell have both entered the UK market. But this week, BBVA changed that with quite an interesting strategy. Emma, tell us what they've been doing. Yes, so BBVA has been part of a funding round led by Atom Bank, the UK's first mobile-focused and digital-only lender, which is launching next year. And BBVA has invested uh, some £45 million and will become the biggest shareholder in, in this Atom Bank. And as a result, this marks BBVA's first foray into the UK retail banking market. But unlike some of its predecessors, so Sabadell, which acquired TSB, the Challenger Bank, earlier this year, and Santander, which launched into the UK a few years ago and bought up various other banks through a range of acquisitions, BBVA is focusing purely on digital, and this is a massive part of its expansion strategy. So other markets it's pushed into, so for example the US and Turkey, it's snapped up or bought stakes in digital-only lenders such as Simple in America and Guarantee Bank in Turkey. And this has really provided a way for it to gain a foothold in these countries and to then expand. Almost to test this thought of, of what banking might be in the future in certain markets. That's right, yes. So they're very keen on the fact that Atom is digital only and they believe that digital is the future of banking and those incumbent banks that don't keep up with digital or indeed focus predominantly on digital services are likely to fall by the wayside. So for them, this part is key. And for Atom Bank, it's crucial really to have on board the credibility of a large established institution, but also the financial firepower as they continue to seek financial backing and really grow in these early stages. So alongside BBVA, they have uh, Neil Woodford and his Woodford Investment Management, which he set up over a year and a half ago. And then Another big shareholder is Tosca Fund as well. So Tosca Fund, Woodford and BBVA will be the three largest shareholders in Atom Bank. Tell us a little bit about Atom. Does it exist at the moment as an active bank already? 
It's launching officially at the start of next year, early in January, but it gained its licence from the Prudential Regulation Authority in the UK in summertime of this year. So it will be the first UK bank to focus on mobile banking, but not the first digital lender ever to exist in the UK. We had Egg and a few others, and admittedly these have failed. So it'll be interesting to see how Atom really does fare. While it might be arguably ahead of the curve in terms of focusing on digital and this is the way forward, is it too early to really gain traction in the UK? Is it too ahead of its time? So we're going to have to wait and see how people react, how many customers it wins, and essentially if its business model is proven to work. Yeah, it's an interesting case study, isn't it? Because I remember the head of BBVA not so long ago, probably, I don't know, three or four years ago, was very keen on entering into the UK market with a big acquisition, potentially. I mean, there's chatter about whether they could buy Lloyds Bank just after it had been uh, nationalised. But this is a very different strategy and uh, certainly bolder, if obviously very much smaller. Let's move on to our final topic for the day. Ben McClanahan in the US has been interviewing the head of the US investment banking arm of MUFG, the Japanese lender. This is Jos Vorso, who has been looking at how that operation in the US can expand in the future. Japan's mega banks are increasingly turning to the US to boost profits as lending margins at home vanish. It's very clear that the US is a big focus. Why now? Is, is it a good time to perhaps take advantage of the strategic upheavals at uh, some of the big European banks in particular? Absolutely, Ben. So um, post-Lehman, if we take the, the, the current most recent period, uh, obviously there was massive disrupted market. Uh, Europeans had gone home, at least temporarily. The Americans were cleaning up balance sheets. We had a chance uh, because we had a very simple business model coming in and coming out. So we had very little, uh, very few issues. We had capital, we had liquidity, we had a great basis, uh, footprint, and platform. And this was our time to, to basically uh, scale that and take share from others. So we went on a bit of a hiring spree from European banks, from distracted Americans, uh, augmenting a great existing staff with the newcomers, and came out of that Lehman era, really climbing lead tables across both franchises of in- industry verticals, building out our product capabilities and essentially doubling our corporate investment banking franchise over that period. Mm-hmm. There's still this disruption in the market, Ben. Uh, it's less so, but we believe we can still continue to take share with, with our model and our, our way of doing business. And the stated ambition is to be a top 10 bank in the US in, in 10 years. By, by what measure and, and, and how will you get there? So, so when we talk about top 10, uh, typically the measure is, is uh, operating income and it's also a returns-based measure. But for us, it really is about continuing the growth path we've been on. Organically, it's the most important part. We have a beautiful franchise, West Coast-based. We're running through a regional bank with retail branches, small business, middle market, and selective corporates. And we have our corporate investment bank. And the idea is to grow all of it and scale the franchise organic as, as fast as we can with the momentum we currently have. And of course, uh, with opportunity presenting themselves inorganically as well. Mm-hmm. And MUFG has something that um, the other big Japanese mega banks don't have, which is a, a big uh, US retail division. How much of a regulatory advantage does that give you? So uh, lots of benefits to, to a retail uh, business. Uh, we have an incredible market presence and, and brand, if you will, around the Union Bank uh, franchise we have on the West Coast. That allows us to attract retail deposits. We can redeploy those retail deposits into both consumer assets. We have a beautiful mortgage business out there. But we also have the ability to leverage that deposit-gathering franchise into some of our corporate investment banking businesses. So while we have great and incredible liquidity in Japan, 
because of our the Japanese savings rate and, and the nature of our balance sheet. We actually have a pretty strong deposit taking capability in the U.S. as well, in part with the franchise we have out there. So for us, it's, it's a uh, diversification play. It hedges our earnings in different rate cycles, and it really creates stable funding for us. Mm-hmm. And I spent a bit of time in, in Japan before coming to the U.S., and I, yeah. I got the sense that the, the Japanese regulator is one of caution, I think, is the prevailing sentiment over there. Is, is it supportive of these uh, aggressive growth uh, ambitions for you? Yes. So, so we pay a lot of attention to our regulators in, in whatever jurisdiction we do business in. So the way we think about the regulatory stakeholder, if you will, is not just U.S. regulators. We also need to make sure that we don't put the mothership at risk. So um, we're regularly audited. We align our strategies very closely with what is expected of us also from the Japanese regulators. So I have no reason to believe that our business model creates undue risk, including for the parent company. We, we're very, very cognizant about that fact. Fine. And finally, um, you're responsible for the U.S. relationship with uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, which uh, famously was, was rescued by you guys in 2008. And uh, you still hold 22.3% of the shares. And uh, in September, MUFG said it wanted to deepen the alliance relationship and explore new areas for collaboration. And um, what were they talking about there? The Morgan Stanley relationship was always a strategic investment. The financial side, of course, has been very, very strong. Uh, the strategic investment has been a grand slam home run, frankly, in, in Japan, where we solved for a, a weak spot in our, in our client offering and that now has been filled to the top of the lead tables. In the U.S., we also have a great strategic relationship. We work together frequently leveraging their world-class M&A franchise in financing the deal so we can partner up and quietly finance size together. We work together whenever it makes sense for us to bring the capabilities of both organizations to a different client. So when we talk about deepening that, that's what we're talking about. We have numerous examples of, of great transactions we do every year that we could not have done apart. Mm-hmm. And as, as you do grow, is, is there a sense that, um, that there's going to come a point where you start treading on each other's toes? I don't believe so. We have areas where, where we work independently. We have areas where we work together. That's natural. We're seven years into it. And, and that works quite well. So, so I don't see that as being a conflict. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Yos. Thanks for having me, Ben. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura and Emma here in the studio, Ben in New York, and also his guest from MUFG. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. And- Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Until next week, goodbye.